Good morning, Illuminate. It's always so good to be with you. Special welcome to those of you who are with us for the first time, or maybe the second time. As Hudson said, you're back after Easter. Thanks for joining us again. Want to make sure that we do connect with you in some way uh, before you head out today. Uh, so yesterday I was uh, with about 120 of our men who are at Lost Canyon Camp in Williams, and be praying for that time. They're coming back this afternoon, but God is doing some really remarkable things in the hearts of, uh, of some of our men. Last year, or a year before, maybe a couple years ago, we took maybe 30 or 40 guys, and so God is really working behind the scenes in the hearts of the men at Illuminate, and uh, be praying for them. Uh, be praying also for some of the wives, because some of those dudes can snore. <laughs> My goodness, note to self. Bring the earplugs. It was rough. God bless you wives for that. Um, wow. So in part, this message is brought to you by Red Bull because I'm still trying to catch up from what it was, man. It, it was rough. Um, so lots to pray for. Um, so here, here's where we're at, uh, right? Over, over the last couple months, we've been opening up the sacred text, also known as the Bible, super unique piece of literature, nothing like it. Nothing comes close to it. The very first book, book of Genesis, is all about understanding uh, everything. Genesis means beginnings. We understand how we got here and why we are here. We've been examining the life of this man named Abram. So relatable. He's a man of faith and a man of frustration. He's a man of great success and great failure. It's like he takes two steps forward and one step back. I can relate to that. Through it all, he will be considered the friend of God, which is a tremendous compliment of all the things that could be said about someone. This person is, is God's friend. How does he get there? Over time, his faith will be built through his obedience. But it's not always there. It's not always consistent. It's growing. At one point, as we'll read in a few weeks, he gets to the point where he's willing to sacrifice his son. That's a lot of faith. But it's not quite there yet. So here's where we're at in the story. He enters the land of Canaan, that's the promised land. He gets there, and nothing is as expected because there's a famine that hits. God's like, here's the land, it's going to be great, I'm going to give it to you. He enters into it, and all of a sudden, there's no food. And so he has to travel north into Egypt. While he's in Egypt, essentially, he gives his wife away in order to protect himself. Bad move, right? And yet... We see him recover. A lot of stumbling in his life, but we see him recover. So at this point, the famine has ended. He travels from Egypt back into the land of Canaan, and that's where we pick it up in chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot was with him. Lot is his nephew, into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, had a lot of gold, had a lot of silver. The word Genesis literally means beginning. This is the first time wealth is mentioned in the Bible. And people have asked, well, what does the Bible say about wealth? Well, Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, his two favorite subjects, money and hell. 
If I preached on money and hell as much as Jesus did, y'all would leave in about a month, okay? <laughs> Why? Why does he talk about it so much? Well, we know it to be true. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your what is? Ouch. See, I, I know where your affections lie based on what you spend your money on. Jesus doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. So that's the test, right? Where's your money going? He talked about hell a lot because you can't appreciate what you've been saved. You can't appreciate your salvation until you fully realize what you've been saved from. Make sense? Let me say it again. You can't fully appreciate your salvation unless you know exactly what you've been saved from. That's why Jesus talked about hell a lot. So we preach hell, and we always do so with a tear in our eye because that's the reality of the human existence. Jesus talked about money and hell a lot. The Bible's neutral on wealth. In and of itself, it doesn't say that it's positive or negative. It's what you do with it. So Christians are encouraged to be generous. By the way, generosity is the cure for your greed. See, it does so much. So it's, it's the way you spend it. You spend it on yourself. What happens is that creates a sense of greed, and greed will consume you. God doesn't give us so that we can absorb wealth on ourselves. He gives it to us so we can be a blessing to others. Additionally, the Bible calls out wicked rich people. So some people are rich because they take advantage of others. They use and abuse others. You'll either love money for what it can do for others or you'll love money for what it can do for yourself. There's no real neutral ground in that sense. And so that's why the Bible does talk about it very straightforwardly. In any case, and you may know, you, you may attest to this fact that uh, wealth can make life convenient, comfortable, right? Um, it's not like this everywhere in the world, as I'm sure you're aware of. Um, we can essentially have anything, um, basically anything in the world delivered to your door without even leaving your home, it comes to you. That's what wealth can provide, conveniences like that. Let me tell you, that doesn't happen in Burundi, one of the poorest nations in the world. Right? The A Amazon Prime isn't running around in trucks delivering to homes in Burundi. See, you might not even be, you may maybe never thought of that before. Now, we just take it for granted, why? Because we are the rich when slightly over half of the world's population lives on about $2 a day, we are the rich. So money makes things convenient, uh, and, but when it comes to family, it can get really complicated. And uh, this is actually what we see in the life of uh, Abram and Lot. Verse three, so, and he, Abram, journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. So he had left Canaan, traveled to Egypt, comes back to Egypt, so he's back where he started. This is between Bethel, Bethel means house of God, and I, I means dump. So he's in between this place called the house of God. Later Jacob will have this vision of God, that's why it literally is named the house of God. And then I, the dump, okay? he's in between these two places. That's kind of how it is for the Christian life sometimes. You feel like you know, you're, you're, you're in this, this kind of like this dump existence of a planet sometimes when you see everything that's going on and the chaos and all of that and, and your future home. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So what does that mean? Maybe you've heard that before. 
called upon the name of the Lord. What is, essentially, what that means is he prayed. He's communicating with God. Now, this is inviting God into your life and acknowledging that he is real, that he exists, but it's so much more than that. It's seeking his guidance and his counsel and his wisdom. Now, what's interesting is that we haven't seen much of this from Abram in the past, and I think that's the reason why he's, be, he's made some really bad decisions, right? Like giving his wife away, putting her in a very vulnerable position. Why? Because he's no longer communicating with God, but now he's turned his face back toward God. And, and let me just tell you that it's never too late to do that. And so you may be here, and, and God may be calling you in this moment, come back to me. Come back to me. Now, people will often say, I don't know if I can do that. You know, I feel like maybe I've done some things that are too far from the outstretched arm of God. Like, could God ever receive me back? The Bible is filled with stories. Heroes, we would consider them. Every single one of them has some serious flaws. That's what makes them relatable. No one is ever too far from the outstretched hand of God. So God may be calling you back to himself even this morning. So let me ask you, what would be keeping you from setting your face toward God? What is it that's preventing you from doing that? I can tell you that it's not worth it because the things that are doing that are actually robbing you of your life. Did you catch that? The things that are preventing you from moving toward God, those are the things that are actually robbing you of life. They're not giving you life. They're robbing you of your life. Why would you want to hold on to those things? So now Abram is setting his face toward God again, and there are going to be some good results here, but uh, God always meets you. Verse 5, and Lot, who went with Abram, he also had flocks. He had herds. He had tents. He's got a lot of stuff also. So, so much so that between these two guys, the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife. There's friction between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of, life, of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. More on those guys in a, in a moment. So these two guys have so much stuff that as they're traveling together, there's, there's not enough land to feed everybody's livestock. Uh, this is going to create a problem between these two family members. Um, Money has divided families. You know, that's just kind of how it works sometimes. And, um, you know, families that have been at peace for years and years and years, all of a sudden somebody dies and then there's money. And then stuff starts coming out that you never knew was inside. The stage is set for family conflict. But Abram proves to be the mature one, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot... Uh, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, you know, because we're family, we're kinsmen. So he's really taking the high road here. He says, look, nephew, let's be at peace. Family is important. So uh, let's do this. Is not the whole land before you? So you, you separate yourself from me, and if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. In other words, he says, all of the land is before us, so let's do this. You decide what you want, and I will take the leftovers. This is humility. This is also trusting in God that God will provide. Right? You take what you want, and I'll take the leftovers. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he looks out, 
and he identifies the parts that he wants. He sees that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Like the garden of the Lord. This is an incredible description. In other words, the author says, I mean, when Lot looks out and he sees the land, the best of the land, the part that's watered, the Jordan Valley, it, it reminds him of the Garden of Eden. That's how rich it is. Kind of like the land of Egypt with that big old river that flows through and waters everything. And this is in the direction of Zoar, which was a town to the south, the lower Jordan Valley. So what does Lot do? He chooses for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So Lot chooses the best. So this, this reveals what's going on inside of Lot's own heart. Um, Lot is treated with great respect by Abram. You choose. And what does Lot do? Cool. I'll take the best. And I'll give you what's left over. Uh, Lot could have said, clearly this is the best of the land. So let's split it in half. Right? You take half of the best, I'll take half of the best, and then we'll split the rest. But he doesn't do that. Now, let me just tell you about the Jordan Valley. It's actually an extremely unique place. It, is, uh, it sits at 600 feet below sea level. It's the lowest valley in the world. I've been there with some of you. It is incredibly fertile. In fact, it's so productive, you can grow all kinds of different vegetables in addition to citrus. You can even grow bananas in the Jordan River Valley. That's how diverse this place is. It is absolute prime property. Even today, I was just reading that they're growing mango trees in the Jordan Valley. Mango trees and dates in the same valley. That's extremely rare. In fact, they've produced a blueberry that they can grow in this area. This is great land, really great land. And Lot says, that's what I want. So he's valuing what the world would value because Lot understands I'm super wealthy. And the way for me not only to maintain my wealth but to increase it is to choose the best of. Abram, you take the leftovers. Now, this is going to prove to be an incredibly bad decision for Lot because he's going to wind up next to this city called Sodom. And that thinks, that's where things begin to unwind for uh, Lot, and not only Lot, but uh, his relatives. So he's got this very uh, worldly view. Now, the Bible tells Christians to be in the world and not of the world. What does that mean? Well, it means that we don't value what the world values. Uh, Romans 12:2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's all about how you think. The Bible says, as a person thinks, so is he or she. Do not be conformed to this world. What does it mean by world? Well, maybe you hear that. Well, the Bible identifies three things that define the world. Lust of the eyes, so if it looks good, get it. Lust of the flesh, if it feels good, do it. And the boastful pride of life, if it has anything to do with you elevating yourself above others, pursue it. That's the world system. Lot's falling prey to that, right? He says, so that by, the te by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? This selfish decision 
on Lot's part proves disastrous. However, Abram is now left in this position where he says, you know what, it's good. I'm a peacemaker. I laid it out there. I'm a man of my word. Lot did what he did. I'll take the leftovers. And in essence, what he's saying is, I'm going to trust in God that God will provide for me wherever I am. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, here's my response to you, Abram. Now you lift up your eyes and you look. Look from the place where you are. Look to the north, to the south, the east. Look all the way to the west. You see it all? Look to all of it. Now, I'm going to stop here because at this point, there's something that jumps off the page. It, would be not, not, it wouldn't be lost on, on the reader back in the day. Uh, previously, we're told that Lot lifts up his own eyes and looks out. Here, what we read is that God says to Abram, now, Abram, I'm telling you to look up. See, there's a difference between you choosing something and God choosing something for you. Let me say that again. There's a difference between you choosing something and God choosing something for you. Lot just kind of looks around. He's like, he looks around. He's like, he looks up on his own. Oh, oh, I like that. That's the best part. I'll take that. And God says, Abram, I got you. Look around you. I want you to look up now. Because here's what I'm going to do and give to you. This is a question. You know, are we letting God choose for us? Or are we choosing on our own without any thought of God? When God chooses for us, it's always better. Verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you. And I'll give to your offspring, offspring forever. So this is big. Because Abram is told not only, hey, all this land is going to be yours for generations, it's going to be Jewish land like for a long, long time. It's going to be in the family forever. But he's also told here that there will be an heir from his own body. Now, there, we'll read about more about this in a couple chapters. But one will come forth from his own body that will be offspring. Now, we know this is big because Abram's very old and his, his wife isn't young either. But we also know that she's barren. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also can be counted. Earlier, God said, I'll make you into a great nation. And we know that that's been true because Abram becomes Abraham, and he's the father of the Israelite nation. So we've seen that promise come true. But here he's reiterating the promise to remind Abram of what he said. Verse 17, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. You know that its widest point, Israel, is 85, approximately about 85 miles Wide. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So these two guys separate. For Abram, it's going to be a good thing. For Lot, it's going to be bad. Now, let me say this. There are healthy separations in life. And sometimes you need to make them. I'll give you an example. I committed my life to Christ when I was 17 years old. I had made a series of bad decisions and uh, found myself, you know, just really like, just bankrupt in every way, right? And, uh, and I told God, I'm kind of done doing things my way. And all the things that I had been raised on, I fell back on. But I tried to have one foot in the old life and one foot in the new life, and it wasn't working for me too well. And part of my challenge, the Bible's true, you become the company that you keep. So that was my struggle. You know, that was my struggle. 
I had some friendships that I had a hard time distancing myself from. So I would continue to involve myself in all the wrong things. I had one foot in this camp and another foot in the God camp. Wasn't working. So an older man of the faith came alongside me and said, you know, you need to, in love, explain to your friends the decision that you've made and what that means for your relationship. So that's what I did. And I was terrified. Because when you're in high school, your friends are everything to you. And so <clears throat> I went to some of my friends and I said, hey, I just want you to know that um, I'm a Christian now. And here's what that means. You know, I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pattern my life after his life. And so, guys, I'm not going to be doing those things anymore. Right? And I didn't lose any friends, by the way. Some of them just kind of distanced themselves from me a bit, which was, which was actually kind of what I needed. But I had to verbalize, hey, I'm not going to be doing that. And that was my moment of separation. Now, fast forward to the end of my senior year. The difference between what was written in my, you know how when you're, uh, when you're signing yearbooks, you know, and you're writing the most, like, sophomoric things as a kid, you know what I'm saying? Like, hey, man, I remember you were like, you know, and all this stuff, and I had my freshman yearbook, you know, it's just like profanity delays and like, you know, you're drawing pictures and stuff like that. It's just, you know, right? It's like high, classic high school stuff, public high school stuff, you know. I don't know what the homeschool thing looks like, but that's, that'd be an interesting thought, <laughs> homeschool yearbook. So, but in public school, it was, it was like that. And so my, I had my freshman yearbook, even when I was older, I got married, started having kids, and I dug that thing out and I found it. And I was like, oh, Lord. I have to destroy this thing. I don't ever want my kids to read it. It's like embarrassing. But then I found my senior yearbook. And the things that were written in my senior yearbook were very different. It was like, hey, Jason, I really appreciate the conversation that we had a couple years ago, and uh, I respect the decision that you made. Then I had a couple people who signed that yearbook whom I had led to Christ. And so I kept both of those books. That's the before and the after. But I really wouldn't have able to get to that, be able to get to the after without a healthy separation. Abram says, listen, nephew, we need to separate. This is a healthy separation because if we stay together, there's going to be conflict. So I'm going to take the high road and I'm going to be the mature one. And that's what maturity does. It initiates the peace. I'll be the peacemaker. And you choose first. I'll take the leftovers. Lot choose worldly. Abram trusts God. And there are results. Uh, listen to this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, maybe you've heard that verse and you're familiar with it. If you come up through youth ministry, that was a popular one back in the day, right? It's like... Flee youthful, and then we would always implant the word lust. Flee youthful lust. But you know, the second part of that verse is really important. Because it's not just a matter of running away from something. Because when you run away from something, you got to think about what you're running to. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, when you're running away from all of those things that bring you down, it's important for you to run, run to the family of God, the household of faith. Uh, this is why it's so important to be engaged in a small group. 
some sort of gathering with other believers so that you're in that environment that's it's rich. The soil is rich, spiritual soil that allows your spiritual roots to grow deep. If you're not connected with other people in the family of God, then you're missing out. And let me just tell you, you will never experience full transformation because God uses three things to change you and me. He uses his word, he uses his spirit, and he uses his people. So, so many people come to church, and this is the challenge with a growing church, is that as churches get bigger, people can become more anonymous, and that's a bad thing. So, it's on us to take the initiative to engage and get involved in that which will feed our souls. So what happens next in chapter 14? Let me summarize it for the sake of time. There's war. First time war is mentioned in the Bible. And it's, it occurs down by the Dead Sea where there's a, a few of these cities. And for 12 years, these cities were paying taxes to this king in the north. His name is Keterleomer. And in the 13th year, these cities decide to stop. Like, you know what? We're tired of paying taxes to this king in the north. We're not going to do that anymore. So the king of the north forms a coalition with other kings, and they come down and they wage war on the kings who are in these cities in the south. Lot, we're told, is actually living in the city of Sodom. Now, earlier we, we read that Sodom is like a super wicked place. Again, God is going to judge that city. But Lot has just settled in. Now, according to 2 Peter, we're told that Lot was a righteous man, and at least at this time, he's observing all the things that are going on in this city, and it bothers him. It's not sitting well with him, but that's his city. He's living there. And in fact, there's a text that tells us he's at the city gate, which is another way of saying he's actually like one of the leaders. He's like an official, but he seems to have no real influence on this city. He gets caught up in this war because he's living in Sodom, and he gets taken as a, a prisoner of war. He and his family, they're all taken captive. Someone, someone escapes from Lot's household, runs back, and, and makes contact with Abram. He says, Abram, Lot has been taken captive. you, you got to help him. Chapter 14, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner, these were the allies of Abram. So Abram's in a different spot, and he's made some friends. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house. And then you get a specific, specific number. 318 of these guys, they're soldiers. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So sometimes you have to wage war in order to maintain peace. People don't like the sound of that, but it is a reality. Sometimes you have to wage war in order to maintain peace. I love what the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer said. He said this, for a Christian to be a pacifist in a fallen and broken world means that we would desert the people who need our help the most. And he's exactly right. And Abram gets a little savage in this moment because he's like, I got 318 trained soldiers. And these guys know how to get the job done. And so they go in, they wage war, they're victorious. And when you wage war, you get the spoils of war. So Lot now has all this stuff coming his way. Now, what happens next is really interesting because as Abram is making his way home, there's this mysterious king that kind of appears out of nowhere. Verse 17, 
After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so then Abram gives this guy a tenth of all he has, because not only is he a king, he's a priest. Melchizedek, who is this guy? He's kind of mysterious. He kind of comes out of nowhere. He's like, hey, I'm a king. And guess what? We worship the same God. Now, what's really interesting about this guy is that typically back in the day, these two roles, king and priest, would be held by two different individuals. But this one man holds both titles. He plays both roles. So that's super unique. Additionally, we learn that God is not just speaking to Abram. God is doing work in some other places that we don't even know about. Because in the midst of this polytheistic culture, here comes this guy of high standing, and he's monotheistic, and he's worshiping the same God as Abram. Now, we don't know anything about him. See, sometimes, like when we were reading about Noah, if you remember, I said, Hey, Noah was the only guy that God was speaking to. And we read the story of Abram and we think, man, Abram is the only guy that God is speaking to. No, not at all. There's this other guy, Melchizedek. God is always working behind the scenes. We don't know a lot about this guy. We don't know much of his backstory. We really don't know anything. But we do know this. God is calling him to himself. Now, when the author of Hebrews writes about Jesus, he's writing to a straight-up Jewish audience. And they're... They, they need to be fully convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. There's the temptation for these Jewish believers is to fall back on their Judaism and reject Christianity. And so the author of Hebrews is like, let me just tell you how much better Jesus is than all of your Judaism. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of your Judaism. And then he says, Jesus is better than that King Melchizedek, who you all love and adore. Because one man was both King and priest, but Jesus is king, priest, and he's also prophet. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. So I think in part, Melchizedek is here, a little bit of a foreshadowing to the person of Jesus to help us understand that Jesus is so much greater than even this great king, Melchizedek. So, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. Like he's been conquered, at least give me my people back, but all all of the, the riches and all that stuff, Abram, it's all yours. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So in other words, he's saying, you know what? I made, it, I made an oath to God that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I'm the one that has made Abram rich. So he says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and, and the share of the men who went with me. So let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. These are my boys, you know, they, they were with me. So let them take their share. They can have their thing. But as for me, I'm not even going to take a shoelace from you. Because I swore to God that I wouldn't. Why? Because in the end, I don't want people to think that I waged war to make myself rich. This is really interesting because when Abram was in Egypt, Pharaoh loads him down with stuff. 
He leaves Egypt super wealthy. That's why we read in the very first verse, he's got a lot of gold and a lot of silver because when he comes out of Egypt, he's like, oh, okay, Pharaoh, I'll take your stuff for sure. That's great. But there's something that's changing in him because now he's like, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm in this for the wealth, for what I can get out of it. What I want people to see is that myself and 318 bad dudes, with God's help, won this battle. This is very different than where he was at before. His faith is growing. So what are the takeaways? Well, certainly, number one, value what God values. Man, we get this wrong so often. When we value what the world values in the moment, it certainly feels right because it appeals to our nature, but that's the warning signal because it doesn't end well. Secondly, patience and obedience and trust. Those are the three things that will grow your faith. And so you may be here this morning and you're like, you know, why is my faith kind of stagnant? Patience. God's timing is not our timing. And in the waiting, that's where trust is built. But don't fail to be obedient to what God is calling you to do. Much better for you to wait on God as you call upon his name and you turn to him and you ask, I, I need the guidance, I need the wisdom. I want you to be the one that chooses for me rather than me choosing for myself. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't know where you're at with this one, but I'm certain that there's something here for you. I've been wrestling with this all week. I can tell you in my own life, I have some growing to do. So Father, we, well, first of all, we're just so grateful for the scriptures and for their the, the relevancy, how they speak such truth in life. No doubt there are some in the room, some even watching online, and they feel like, yeah, what's the point? It's, it's, I'm too far gone. I, I can't go back. That's, that is just a lie. Father, you're, you're always responding to a heart that is open to you. Father, some of us, we, we've just been making our own choices. We haven't been calling upon your name. We haven't been searching after you. And that's why we're in a rut. We're stuck. That might be the source of our anxiety, our depression. Father, I pray that you would be the one that lifts our eyes up and looks out, ultimately looking up to you. But Father, as always, as we leave this place, we pray that your spirit would speak in such a mighty and profound way that we would leave changed. You would help us to value what you value because ultimately that would, that's what gives us life. So grateful for every person here, not here by accident, God. Continue to work in all of our lives for your glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen. Amen.